that is at the center of our company still. And it was really the reason why we were recently acquired. So what we did was we built this audience, we gained their trust, we write in a really relatable way, and they found it to be very different than what they were reading in the Wall Street Journal and other main, mainstream publications. We became kind of the antithesis of mainstream media. And we, I think we had a little bit of a chip on our shoulder about that. Welcome to Top of Mind, a show where we speak with top marketers, creators, and leaders who are shaping the culture around us. I'm Stuart Hillhouse, and I believe that through great marketing, you can earn the privilege of occupying a tiny sliver of your customer's already overflowing brain. Join me today as we learn what it takes to become top of mind. If you spend any time listening to marketing and startup gurus talking about the future, you've no doubt heard the saying, everyone needs to think like a media company. This saying used to apply just to businesses, but it has since evolved and is now as relevant to individuals as ever. But what does it mean to think like a media company? In my opinion, I think it means that if you only sell things, your relationship with your customers is purely transactional. But if you also create media and content around your business, then the relationship becomes transformational. Simply put, products appeal to people's rational brain but media appeals to people's emotional brain. It might sound kind of wishy-washy, but think about your favorite brands. Sure, their products are well-made and get done what you need to do, but that's not what makes you love them. You love them because of their playful Instagram posts, their super helpful newsletter, or their perfectly produced podcasts. Media is the glue that makes brands sticky. And to help us learn more about the inner workings of a media company, I'm joined by the person who makes sure that the 1.7 million readers of The Hustle get to see top-notch business news and entertainment day after day. I'm pleased to welcome to Top of Mind, Brad Wolverton. Thanks for having me today. Do you agree with that opening statement about like everyone needs to think like a media company? It seems pretty played. That's been kind of... People have been talking about that for a while. I was curious if that's something that is even on your mind or if that is just kind of assumed given your kind of career trajectory. I think it's very much, it has been played. It is, it, it, it feels like though we've seen in recent months that many companies that have not come from the media space that have what you just described, which is sort of like this product relationship with their customers, you know, where they appeal to their customers' rational sides, need to tap into media in some form, whether they acquire media companies, like we've seen many companies do, including our company in recent months, or whether they create their own form of that within their um, under their umbrella of what they put out to the world on their website and in, in social media. And it's it's also interesting too because in your case, the hustle media is the product, like content is the product, and so it's even more necessary to have a really good pulse on what your audience needs from you, because that is what they, in some cases are getting for free. And then in other cases, your paid product, like the content is the paid product. And so they need to get a lot of value from it as well. Yeah. So the hustle started as an events business. So we did this thing called HustleCon out in the Bay area, which was essentially like Ted talks, but for entrepreneurs. And this is like six years ago or so. And the founder of the company, Sam Parr just got 
a bunch of people together and brought in powerful founders out in Silicon Valley and people came and they really liked it. And from that, he created, like he got everybody's emails and he created a list and then he started sending stories to him and basically took the form of a daily email. And this was in the early years when email was like, in terms of what media companies were delivering on a daily basis, it was, it was in the early stages. And so it became the um, backbone of our business because very quickly we realized that we could monetize after we got to a certain level, you get 100,000, 500,000 people subscribing and a very high open rate because we have a product that people really like because it's real and it's honest and it's like has just really smart, irreverent takes on the business and tech space. And so when you capture their attention that way, then you, you can sell into that audience. And so what we did was we monetized it through advertising in the email, which it's kind of crazy. You basically don't have the traditional form like a newspaper where you have a print product and all this overhead. You just have an email that you send out and you can attach advertising, you can embed advertising in it, and you can make millions of dollars a year doing it. So very much that is at the center of our company still. And it was really the reason why we were recently acquired. So what we did was we built this audience, we gained their trust, we write in a really relatable way, and they found it to be very different than what they were reading in the Wall Street Journal and other main, mainstream publications. We became kind of the antithesis of mainstream media, and we, I think we had a little bit of a chip on our shoulder about that. I mean, I personally came from a background where I worked for a lot of mainstream media companies. Then I took a turn and was a reporter and investigative reporter at NerdWallet, where we basically used SEO to get people's attention. Or through SEO, we got, you know, traffic to our site and that's how we told our stories. And now here, using a different form, which comes directly to people in their inbox, I think it's just a much more intimate form of communicating. And if you find the right voice, it's it's like little overhead. It's not zero, but it's, you know, basically mm -hmm. all you have to have is like smart writers who can interpret what's happening. And what we do is we, we sort of capture people's attention by writing about the big things that are happening in startup land and the business and tech world. And we, you know, we package it in a really fun way. We just basically tell stories and we, you know, we put as much humor and personality into the writing as we can. You've been a writer and an editor and a reporter and generally working in media for, for a number of years. And you mentioned a few other of your previous employments there. Is there any particular moment that you can recall when you realized you wanted to be part of the media business? Oh man, I was probably like 10 or 12 years old. I just knew it. It was kind of in my, in my bones. I just felt like a storyteller. I will say I, I knew from an early age that I wanted to be a writer. And what appealed to me about it was that I could honestly wake up in the morning and read things and go learn things and explore my curiosities. And that became my career. And so I've been fortunate to, you know, move up in, in a career trajectory where I don't just report and write stories now, but I oversee a team of people who, who do that. And, you know, it's, it's just still the greatest job in, that I think that's out there, honestly. Tell me a little bit about what goes into a reporting on a story. I don't think, I, I don't, I personally don't understand how, the you go from idea to source and then actually write the story and then fact check and everything like that can you can you give me a little insight on what maybe what it looks like at the hustle now how you pitch stories and then how it goes from idea to print yeah it's very different the hustle versus traditional media I oh i'd love to hear that difference then yeah sure in a traditional media environment you know you 
have a network of people that you are, you know, that you consider your sources and you work on a beat generally into some, some specific area that people have a lot of interest in. And then you, you know, you mine those sources, you constantly are trying to learn new things about what's happening. You're trying to break news and get people's attention through new developments. But then you also, I mean, in my case, I fortunately spent a lot of years getting to do longer form pieces, which involved weeks and sometimes months of research where you spend time with someone or you, you know, I did a piece once where I found this guy who I used to cover college sports. And I found this guy who keep in mind college sports in, at the big time level is very competitive. It's also really hard to, for a lot of kids who haven't prioritized education growing up to get into college. And so they, you know, they use people to sometimes cheat for them. And so I found this guy and we called this story, the confessions of a fixer. And I wrote this piece in which I got him to tell whole this whole tale with all these notebooks and records and everything showing all these kids who he'd helped cheat for to get into major colleges and universities at some of the biggest places out there. So that was through a network of people I knew. And that story, you know, took me months to unravel. And I had to make several trips to the place where this guy was living. And, you know, it had to be lawyered up. And so it had a lot of layers to it. And then that story eventually ran in Sports Illustrated. The the Hustle does a different kind of, of journalism. And that is, we take largely kind of what's happening on the internet. And we really try to keep our finger on the pulse of that. And we have, you know, a really talented lead writer on the daily email called, his name is Trung Fan. And he basically you know, he tweets all day and he's, he lives on the internet, but he just has a real knack for knowing a story that's going to hit with our audience. And he does a certain type of curative journalism where he's picking up on things that are important and saying something a little bit more layered and textured than what the, a lot of people say, just because he's got a bit of a a non-traditional background too, as a person who's come from the finance space. So he knows and understands business in a different way than a lot of beat writers might. And so he can very quickly, like when when some of the big tech companies have been under pressure and, and the Justice Department has filed suit against him, you know, we had to scrap what we were planning to write for the next day, late in the day one time recently. And Trung whipped out a story in like 15 minutes. And so he just knows the space. And we have another writer, Zach Crockett, who does our longer form Sunday pieces. Those stories typically take, you know, many days to research, whereas Trung's pieces can take, you know, a few short hours. I think Trung wrote one from a couple of weeks ago about Pink Whitney. Was that him or was that? That was Trung, yes. Yeah, like the vodka brand that was the amalgamation between Barstool Sports and then, uh, I don't remember the vodka brand. It was like Ernest and Julio, I think had, like that's who their distributor became. But yeah, it was, it was kind of, it, it was basically a story about this thing that Barstool, like, created out of a podcast. I mean, there were these two former NHL hockey players who had, you know, as part of an ad that they were reading on the air for their podcast, they had to read something about what would they do distinctively with this vodka. And they said, I, I put it, put, put, put pink lemonade in it. And that became basically the product and they've sold, you know, millions of dollars worth of this. And so a traditional media brand now turning into a product distributor, totally different model. Right. Right. So that that story, I think, is a perfect example of a story that, when pitched, could kind of go either way. It's like, oh, man, there's so much underlying stuff here. We're talking about markets being swallowed by media. We're talking about white labeling, in this case, pink labeling something. But there needs to be that specific angle on it of how is this relevant to our community of startup people and entrepreneurs and, and general tech enthusiasts. 
So you as the director of content, when you hear that story, what kind of notes are you giving to your writers to make sure that it it aligns with the rest of the company? Yeah, so it's actually, it happens really fast. And a lot of this is in Trung's head because Trung kind of sees something happen and then he just moves on the story. So we give our people a lot of autonomy and Trung's really talented. So Trung and Zach and other people we have will, sometimes we'll talk about the stories as uh, you know as something comes up, but oftentimes Trung will write the piece just, it will just show, I will basically not have a huge role in determining what the daily agenda is going to be. So the daily team sets that agenda. It happens on a kind of rolling basis. It's not like we wake up in the morning, we read everything that's out there, we see what's happened on the internet overnight, and then we write our, you know, our briefs for the next day. We're constantly in motion. So honestly, it's an almost 24-hour job where you see something, you make a change to the next morning's email at sometimes late at night. And a lot of it doesn't feel like it's neatly organized in a file because the world doesn't work like that. You could just say, all right, this is our lineup. And we do that. We put, a, put our lineup in a, in, a, in a story file in the morning. And you know, before we do that, we have various writers pitching stories. And then we decide which ones we're going to put in and at what length. And it comes together pretty, pretty quickly. And so you don't necessarily have a specific set of guidelines that you look for when you're selecting stories, but you just want a mix of stuff that is both kind of going to keep people's attention and that we can say something additional to that the mainstream media may not have said, or something with a little more flourish or sense of humor. What, what skills would you recommend to someone who doesn't have a journalistic background, but is interested in this sort of beat reporting? I'll use beat reporting because that's the, that's the kind of industry lingo, but really just if you're interested in making any type of personal content, but you want to have a specific area of focus, what, what recommendations would you have to people getting started? Well, we've had an explosion of talent, frankly, of lots, lots and lots of people who are self-publishing now and sharing their insights with the world. And you know whether that's Substack or other platforms, there are so many people and most of them don't have a background in journalism. And we don't even necessarily screen for just journalists. In fact, we've found that oftentimes the best people for us have had some industry experience. I mean, in Trung's case, he had a little bit of journalism experience coming out of school and then he wrote a, a screenplay and sold it to Fox. And so he had, you could see in his background, like the early stages of understanding, like how to put story together, the interest in being a storyteller, but then he spent a decade on Wall Street. And so I think that it's actually really valuable to have a mix of people, both who have traditional you know, writing and editing and understanding of like the the sort of editorial principles and foundations of good journalism, but also people who just know how to relate to people and write in a relatable way and who've been there and done that. And so they can add much more deeper insights into it. Are there any type of editorial principles that come to mind that would kind of separate a person who's just a pure writer from an editor? Like how can you make your writing easier for an editor? Uh, I think what makes it challenging for people who don't on a daily basis report and write stories, but come into it and want to do that is sometimes they don't have the same editorial scruples that you, you know, you expect of someone like they don't necessarily immediately, they, they're not inclined to ask the tougher questions, which is sometimes what's required to yield information. That's the most interesting for a story because like good stories have conflict. And so we look for conflict. We don't just look for stories that have like, this is a great company and it's growing fast. We certainly write about those companies and we write about the phenomenons of growth in different areas. But, you know, I think people want to 
they, they gravitate to stories that have conflict. You know, I think you mentioned earlier that the media has a tendency to appeal to people's emotional brains. And I think that when we think of storytelling, we think of like trying to inspire awe and try to get people to think about opportunities. Those are the two things that we, we, we try to trade on. In preparation for this call, I reached out to a couple of your colleagues and one of them said that the biggest thing that you've taught them is the ability to, the importance of seeing both sides of the story. Why, why is that so important to you? I mean, I think it's just flat. If you're just a mouthpiece for a company, you're, you know, it's, it just reads like an advertisement for the company and an audience is not going to be interested in that. It's the same thing that like you were alluding to earlier. It's like, if you're only selling, you're just transactional. I mean, the only way to be more transformational is to really dig into a story and understand it at its core, be able to con- communicate about it in a real and an authentic way. And if you don't do that, then people are going to see through that. And that's not the audience you're looking for, I guess. That's like, that's kind of just PR, as you're saying, like mouthpiece, just tell me a good, tell me something good about the, the round of money you just raised and we'll, we'll get it out to our readers, but that's not the game you're in. It's not the game we're in, in part because we know that's not the game that audiences are into either. Like there's a time and a place to go read trade publications and learn about, you know, who's raised the most money and in what, you know, spaces are growing the fastest and stuff like that. And we, we definitely care about that. I mean, our audience on the hustle side, which, you know, we have million and a half plus audience that opens our email every day. And we have 66% of them roughly are entrepreneurial minded. And we have another product, which is a paid circulation product, which is trends where they are more interested in like the nuts and bolts of business building. And so we'll probably do more of those questions there. Like, like an interview would fit much more easily for a trends audience. If we were interviewing someone and we wanted to like have that person deconstruct how they built their business Mm. for the broader audience I just don't think that's quite as appealing unless there's something that, you know, that's, there's something emotional in there or there's some, some relevancy to their, their interests or there's some broader storyline that grabs their attention and holds it. Let's chat a little bit about the Hustle's recent acquisitions because this is really kind of exciting and it shows that there is absolutely true value in creating that emotional connection with an audience. You can kind of take it any direction, like an audience first company, if, if you will. What I think I might just let you explain the, the timeline behind what this acquisition by HubSpot was, was like and why it seemed like the right fit. Yeah, so... Sam Parr, the guy who started our company, I I think has always entertained offers. So for the past few years that I've been working with him, he's, you know, we've had a lot of court, a lot of suitors, basically a lot of people from mainstream publications were interested in acquiring us. And a lot of those people, he's just felt like it wasn't the right fit. And it was usually because they were just looking for someone not who didn't just understand the email game, but somebody who was hipper or cooler or who could sort of salvage their dying brand. And so I don't think that that was appealing to him for that reason. Last summer, I think last summer, last fall, HubSpot came calling and was just straight up interested in us for the things that we do. And they, there was a real connection for Sam because he saw in them some of the same, the same important things that helped them grow their business, which is like, being authentic to their customers, serving a, a business building audience. And it just connected with him. It resonated that we had built this, not just this daily 
you know, news product about the business and tech space called The Hustle. But we had also a couple of years ago started this paid circulation product, Trends. And Trends was essentially much more than just we're doing reports on what are the latest business opportunities. But it became this amazing community of entrepreneurs. It's essentially just a private Facebook group. But there's, you know, now like 15,000 people in this group, anywhere from like early stage startups to people who've you know sold companies for hundreds of millions of dollars and they're all connected and they are engaged it's almost like you know if you think of the media business bloomberg has their terminals and people come to their terminals every day and traders rely on those well our community was really they loved the content but they they equally if not more loved this community that grew up around it and so that is a lot of what HubSpot acquired. And that was one of the big reasons why Sam was interested in working with them is because HubSpot has 100,000 businesses that they support through software to help them grow their business. And Trends and the, the Hustle do very similar things. And so we write about and we inform people and we keep them entertained. And we're sort of, I guess you could look at it in terms of marketing terms, we're like a funnel for acquisition for them, but it's an authentic funnel. So that's really what made sense. And I was going to say that HubSpot is kind of the poster child of a company that went so hard on content early days. And that became their not only their acquisition advantage, because people would come and find a blog post and then learn that, oh, actually, HubSpot is able to kind of help me out with this question that I had about... They covered everything in marketing and kind of sales and everything like that. But then they also... It's very much a moat for their business now is that people trust that brand through all their content. What value do you think the hustle offers HubSpot that they weren't able to build themselves or would have taken too long? Or what was the true value? Not a, not a dollar value, but literally the thing that they saw as most valuable in acquiring Hustle. I mean, part of it was that they didn't do email and they weren't in people's inboxes. And so we had figured that out. So it was just a very tactical move. But I think part of it too was that authenticity I was just talking about, which was like we had built this trust in, with this audience. And it turned out that the audience was actually not exactly their audience. It's the same general, you know, business builder type audience, entrepreneurial minded, but it's not exactly the same people. And so they're constantly thinking about, you know, this is only, I've only been there for a month, so I'm not an expert in HubSpot's operations, but I will say that everything I've heard, it, it was, you know, it's all been suggested that they, they wanted us because of like, we had really good, a really good podcast called My First Million, which Sam and another guy who, who he's friends with put, put out every week. And that has just captured a lot of eyeballs and listens. And like people are really interested in what they talk about because they, they basically talk about how you can go build different kinds of companies in different spaces. And so they have a really rabid following and they have a Facebook group there too. We have trends and a really rabid following. And like, these are, these are also moats in different ways. Like they were moats for our business, but they can make the moat of HubSpot even stronger. Yeah, they're, they're complementary. They don't really cannibalize each other all that all that much because either you're a HubSpot user who loves trends or you're a trends user who has yet to use HubSpot or you use or you use both of them, right? They they definitely play off each other. 
Yeah, and we're starting to figure out some of those synergies because, you know, they've produced a library of content. You know, they have this thing called HubSpot Academy where you can learn about all kinds of different things. And, you know, we're looking at ways that we can incorporate some of that into the packaging of what we give our trends audience. We have lots of interviews. We have done tons and tons of case studies. There's just so much smart content. I think we're at a stage now with trends where we're evolving as a business to think less about what can we do and go and uncover new for you every week as much as we're definitely into that still. But I think a big part of our evolution 2.0, 3.0, whatever you want to call it, is making sure that we repackage things that we've done and make them more easily findable for a broader audience. Can you explain what you mean by repackage? I think that's kind of a key thing that a lot of marketing people struggle with is we love putting in the work to get the content built, but then we let it sit there and kind of die on the vine. I was wondering if you could kind of go into detail about how you think about repackaging and repurposing. If you, if they're the, if they're synonyms, they might not be. Yeah, I mean, I think of it as repurposing material that we've produced or thinking more intently about what what an audience will best be served by. So an example, we just recently had someone do a, spend a lot of time, many hours, dozens of hours doing a report on the review industry and opportunities in that space. And we wrote a 4,000 word piece about it and it was packaged smartly and it had all sorts of different ways to think about how the business has grown, what kinds of different review sites are out there, what the future of this business looks like. And it was an amazing report. The writer who did that piece, after he finished it, he said, you know, as a consumer of trends, I would be more interested and engaged if this was just a deck, you know, a 50 slide deck, because it would give me, I could put, I could repackage it in the form of a deck and make it more easily consumable and more relatable to people. And they would, and so I knew that, honestly, I felt kind of like kicking myself because some of our most clicked stories for trends are decks. Literally, we can write... 5,000 words, 10,000 words about something. But if you do a 73 slide deck and it's, it just hits the right notes, like I think there's a real future in thinking about the type of medium that you put the content in. And that's a great medium going forward. I think we're going to do a lot more of that and either repurposing things we've already done or thinking, you know, as with that form first from the start. Mm. Are there any other mediums that you're interested in or experimenting with? I think the the biggest medium that we're experimenting with and I think has the greatest potential is audio just because right now we're we're not in a, a world where during the pandemic most people are spending a lot of time sitting in their car commuting to the office they still have time that they're walking their dogs or that they're at the gym or whatever they they have time away from their computers and they increasingly like we started producing an, a podcast version of our we send out a report every week from trends which is two to 3,000 words long, and it's packed with opportunities and ideas for businesses. And that the, the form of that that has actually resonated the best with the audience is an audio form. So we literally just read the newsletter in audio form, and then we break down some of the opportunities in a discussion with the analysts. And that's, you know, I, we have tremendous usage of that audio, and I think people are just really into audio. I'm personally, I think there's a lot of opportunity in shorter the shorter and smarter and you know forms of content are better whether that's texts or whether that's screenshots i think i'm really intrigued by can you package you know it's almost like what's 
what what has evolved as a tweet thread has become almost like the way people are informing themselves about all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's a deep enough form of information without feeling overloaded. Like you're just bombarded from so many directions now that I feel like even the email industry, like I'm in this telegram group, it's called type house with some, some top business newsletter writers. And they've been recently talking about, Hey, are your open rates going down? Are your open rates going down? What's going on? Is this a problem with Substack? What's going on? Is this Gmail? And so I think what it is, is like people are overloaded with information. There's like, we found this stat as we were researching this piece on the, the newsletter industry. We did a long report on this and we found that that was super interesting for our audience. So we dug in even deeper and we found one little stat as, as we were researching this, this was just phenomenal. 14,000 people, 14,000 users a day create a MailChimp account. So literally like so many, there's so much growth in that space. So those are mostly marketers, but think about that for a minute. Every single day, that many more people. So there's just a a mountain of content coming at people. So the shorter, smarter forms are just going to win. But that kind of goes against your bread and butter, which is the long form, really deep dive stuff. How, how are you thinking about balancing kind of accuracy and those kind of journalistic principles and then packaging it in a way that is super consumable? We do both. We have yeah. to. I think you have to do all kinds of different forms of content. I think that that's the, the beauty of being in this business right now is some people might fear that like the media industry is imploding and dying and like tens of thousands of journalists are losing their jobs every year. But at the same time, there's never been better opportunities for people in the, in the space of, cons- of, of packaging and, and conveying important, timely, smart insights, especially in the, in the business space. And so I think we're in this renaissance period where if you, you know, you have to keep exploring new forms of storytelling and make sure that you're meeting people where they are, but also challenging them and pushing them to consume different forms of content and experimenting, you know, using the, the, the things that tech, tech businesses are so well known for, which is just A-B test different things to see what the audience likes. So I think there's a lot more experimentation that we need to do, but I definitely think there's a place for short and there's definitely a place for longer form content. And we're going to be in both those spaces. I love it. One more question for you. And this, this also, this comes from one of your colleagues as well. And maybe you can guess who it is at the end based on the, the question. But he said that you are a big sports fan and you were, you were a sports writer for a while too. And he wants to know, does, it, does the lack of sports coverage at the hustle just kill you on the inside? I'm not going to guess who I think that is. I mean, it could be anyone on the team. They, I, I, don't, I don't talk about it that much. I don't I mean, I'm a fan of sports, but I, as a, as a journalist, I've always sort of turned a sharp edge toward some of the coverage that I've done. So it wasn't always just, I'm a fan and I'm celebrating the greatest things that are happening in sports. I wasn't that type of journalist. So I think that any, you know, in, in any industry, we can make our audience interested. I think certainly we don't cover sports that much because our audience has told us that's not a priority for them. But if there's a really good story about ESPN and how they've pivoted and done something interesting in the tech space, we're going to cover that. I, I don't think we're going to cover, you know, when, you know, who wins the Super Bowl. I mean, we made a joke about this in our intro. Like we literally said, we just, we just basically just acted like we didn't even know who won the game. So <laughs> I think that we, we try to, uh, again, like 
recognize that our audience isn't there. And I personally don't care about it that much. I can, you know, get my fix in other ways. Awesome, Brad. Well, you can check out the Hustle's free newsletter, thehustle.co and sign up there. And I'm sure you'll get hooked pretty quickly. And if you want to check out the uh, more in-depth analytical stuff, it's trends.co. Brad, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. If you enjoyed anything that you just heard, you're going to absolutely love what I'm about to tell you. If you go online to stuarthillhouse.com and hit the subscribe button, you'll be added to an email list where I share exclusive content related to this show. This is where I'm going to share my key takeaways from each episode, including my highlights, top of mind takeaways, and next steps that you can do to put this advice to action. I also share some real life breakdowns of marketing campaigns that I'm seeing around and how I'm using it in my work. So head on over to stuarthillhouse.com and hit the subscribe button to get your first email. Looking forward to seeing you there.